0: Thank you so much, Sin Cheng, for reading God's Word. Can I encourage you to keep your Bibles open in any shape and form? Because from this point onwards, as we preach and teach through Genesis, we're going to cover very huge passages. So there's no way we're going to read every single passage. And may I give this to you as good spiritual uh, discipline and homework for you to be reading in advance. If you have come here and you're still uh, a little bit unsure about Christianity, Actually, you're new, you're not a believer, you're a seeker. Maybe sit beside somebody and somewhere along the line, download a, a Bible that you can read for yourself. We'll try to explain God's Word as best as we can. Okay. So, for all who have come here, please take note. It's by grace that you're here. And so to reward you for grace, this book. So please take this home. And if you already have a copy, don't worry. Never just take things for your own blessing. But pass it on to others. So keep on for yourself, pass it on to others because the Lord has blessed us, as you can see on your left, on your right. <laughs> Plenty of books that God has given to us. Okay. Weddings are some of the most joyous, happiest, upbeat occasions, and rightly, understandably so. Right? And by God's grace, we have conducted many weddings here, hundreds of weddings here over the last 30 years. By God's grace, I've conducted many of them. And here are some of the more humorous, light-hearted moments that add to the whole joy of weddings. A few couples, uh, they, um, most couples bring their flowers, their deco, their program, everything they bring. But a few couples uh, of the cup that we have solemnised here forgot to bring their marriage certificate. So they brought everything important Including themselves, except the piece of paper that needed to be signed. So, what could we do? Except pretend to sign, <laughs> then sign it afterwards. Uh, one or two weddings had to be stopped halfway. I, I can still remember one or two here. Halfway, the groom signaled and signaled that the bride, um, we had to stop because she felt faint. And so, we stopped the service smack in the middle, right? Why? Because the corset was too tight. Or didn't eat breakfast that morning. And so we just laugh about it afterwards. One or two, there was one, and not conducted by me, but I think by one of our pastors, in which the rings, you know, you either put them in a box or you tie them up on a pillow. Apparently this one, they tied up the rings and it was a dead knot. So they had to run out and buy a scissors. And that delayed the whole wedding solemnization. I'm not kidding. I don't make up these stories. They're for real. And though they're little quirks, right, little derailments, they still all add up to the joy of weddings and of marriages and of family life. But sometimes the twists and the turns get a little bit more serious. Did you read of 23-year-old Coco Sue? She had been preparing for her wedding. And like all brides, She wanted to look her best, and so she signed up. She found on the internet, tracked it down a a beauty salon that offered her liposuction because she thought her arms were too fat. She paid 2,500 ringgit for it, and then that Saturday afternoon, she went with a friend to this place. and she sat down, they told her the procedures. Then they proceeded with the the whole treatment, and they gave her a jab for local anaesthetic. About half an hour after that jab, she started to feel unwell. About an hour later, her heart stopped and she died. This was just in the news, friends. It's a totally unexpected turn. And from expectant joy, you plunge into sorrow. And you and me cannot even begin to imagine the kind of pain, the kind of grief, when people walk through those kinds of experiences in life. I was watching a news clip, an American news clip. And they were interviewing, I was halfway into it, they were halfway into it when I tuned on. And this father had obviously lost his child, his son, I think, in one of those tragic shooting accidents in in America, where somebody just picks up a gun and automatic and starts shooting around at a shopping centre or school. And he lost his son and they asked him how he felt, what he learned, what he could share. And the line that stood up from the interview for me was this line. What line? That grief is love with nowhere to go. If you have lived long enough and experienced brokenness in your life, and especially broken relationships in your hearts and your homes, if you live long enough and lost health and you're facing illness, and finally you face the death of a really loved one where the, the ending of something looked like the beginning of something like this lady who was about to get married. Then I think, grief, love, nowhere to go becomes more and more real. I track it down, this quote. It was actually, I think originally, by Jamie Anderson, the author of Doctor Who. And so the whole quote sounds like this. Grief, I've learned, is really just love. It's all the love you want to give, but cannot give. It's all the unspent love gathered up in the corners of your eyes. It's the lump of throat in that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with nowhere to go. Ponder that truth, friends, because when we arrive at Genesis 23 to 25, these three chapters, you have arrived at what we call unmitigated grief, inconsolable sorrow, unimaginable pain. Why? Because you've come now to the passing away of the matriarch and patriarch of God's story of salvation, of God's story of redemption, and chapter 23 begins with, Sarah died. And Sarah dies, she lived 127 years. You know how long we have journeyed with her? How long have I known you? How long have you known the person by your side, on your left, on your right? How long have you known the person in front of you? You say, I, I, I just met the person, I don't even know who they are, because all their names changed to zone A, zone B, zone A, zone B. Right? Uh, how long have we known each other? We have journeyed with them, in the story of salvation, in the story of redemption for 60 years. We first met her, first met Sarah, when she was 65, recorded in Genesis chapter 12, when she went down with Abraham to Egypt. And at 65, she was beautiful enough to turn the heads of Pharaoh's officials to be trapped into a harem. And so, she passes on. We have seen this, journey, this couple journey together. A long life, a long love, to the ups and the downs, the highest joys and the deepest sorrow. And now she passes on. What, does, what do we find Abraham, her husband, doing? It's instinctive. Instinctive coupling. You're thirsty, you drink. You're hungry, you eat. There's a death, What do you find? There's a death. You must find a burial ground. And so chapter 23, he sets about to find a burial ground. And by God's grace, he finds that burial ground. And the message there, through agreement and and negotiation, it is his first stake in the land, a permanent stake in the promised land. Then now, with that background, we arrive at chapter 24. So after the passing of his beautiful wife, Abraham, with whom he had experienced the best and the worst in the pilgrimage of faith, he now looks for a wife for Isaac, his long-awaited son. No, friends, correct me, correct yourself. He had son, his long-awaited heir. Because you may have many sons, but can only have one heir to your inheritance. And God had told him that this son would not come from Hagar or any other woman, but would come from Sarah. And he came after 25 years of waiting. And so they have been through the worst and the best of the pilgrimage of faith. And so he looks for a wife for Isaac, his heir. But you know, the story begins here. It's all about God, the matchmaker. It's 67 verses long. And as you read Hebrew stories, Hebrew narrative, here are some things you need to realise. Firstly, it will play out for you the circumstances. And then into the circumstances, often a crisis, will come the characters. And in comes the characters. You will get to know the characters not by the author's description of them, but by their dialogue. And then all that, the circumstances, the character and the dialogue will meet up the plot. And the plot has many scenes. And so to understand this, Genesis 23 to 25, yep, seeing whether this thing is on. Are you seeing the slides? Yep, no. Nope. Okay. And so, what do we see here? We go back one. Go back one. And, yep. Sorry. Sarah dies. And now we see God the matchmaker in Genesis 24. And then in Genesis 25, Abraham dies. And they go through what we call unmitigated sorrow and grief. Where I'm going to spend most of my time explaining is chapter 24. Because that's where the emphasis is to understand the circumstances, the characters, the dialogue, the plot and the whole storyline of God coming to save his people, beginning with the first couple of redemption, Abraham and Sarah. Okay? So they have been foreigners and nomads all their life. Sarah dies, Abraham is old, Isaac is their heir, except that being foreigners and aliens, where on earth is he going to find a wife? Because he's always on the move in a foreign land. And so it begins with this, the Bible, the, the outline. I'll break it down into six scenes for you. I'll be explaining it as such. The mission, go find a wife, says to the servant. The search, the servant goes. The date, they f- the servant meets the bride, the future bride. The proposal, the servant meets not just the woman, but her family. And then the blessing Please go. And finally, the wedding, the marriage, all the way to verse 67. That's a typo there. And so now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my tie, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife for my son, Isaac. So, Abraham calls his faithful servant. And notice as he calls him, he invokes the name of God. And this is the God of heaven and earth. And that has echoes of the creation in the beginning, God created everything, right? In the heavens and on earth. Very, very important. Sounds like that. This is his distinctive standout, stand-alone God. Then Abraham sends him on a matchmaking mission. And the instructions given to this unnamed servant is, one will and two will not. One do and two do not. You will go to my country and my kindred, and take a wife for my son, Isaac. But this is what you will not do. You will not take the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. And so in modern day terms, right, in matchmaking modern day terms, he was saying to the servant, when you go and look for a, for a bride for my son, please, uh, no locals. No locals. If you got traced together, they shouldn't be within Bluetooth range. It should go further, right? slightly further. Go global. Go back to my roots. And you ask yourself, why not Canaanite? Is this racist? Is this eugenics? No, you start to get glimpses as you read this book of Genesis that there's something about the people of Canaan. And the first hint of it is actually given in Genesis chapter 9 when God speaks to Noah about this. The next hint comes when you met the Sodomites. And the Sodomites, their life was totally anti-God. And God brought judgment and punishment on the city of Sodom. But this is arguably the most instructive insight to it. The most instructive insight okay, is Genesis 24. And Genesis 24 and says this. Oh, okay, 26. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Barry the Hittite, to be his wife, and Bessemer, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So whatever we do not know about the Canaanites, they are anti-God and anti-God's purposes and anti-God's people. And so Abraham, whatever knowledge he didn't have, he knew that he was not to find a wife for Isaac, his heir, from among the Canaanites. Their views, their values, their life, their lifestyle was idolatrous. And there'll be two lines of men. So the second will not is that you will not, you must not, take Isaac back to my country and my kindred. Possible reasons? I mean, mixed logic, right? Trying to find a, a wife for this guy, bring him back there. Show how wealthy he is, show how good-looking he is, show how prospective and um, number one most eligible bachelor. But no. Why? Could be Abraham is old. And anything could happen as he, as Isaac leaves him. Or Abra- uh, Isaac could go there and be so attracted by Nahor and the returning to his roots. Or Isaac could face unseen, unknown danger to and fro, but the most likely reason is verse four, uh, verse 7. And verse 7 says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I give this land. So it's not for Isaac to go back to where Abraham left. It's for him to find a wife that will come to where God has promised and that is to the land in Canaan. Which leads us to think, right, spiritually, anything that takes you backwards, anything that takes you and me backwards to what? Backwards to any self-security, backwards to any self-wisdom, cannot be helpful. God's call to us is always self-forgetting security, leave all that behind, and God trusting faith. Faith is a forward movement because it looks upward to God. Faith never looks backwards. It's not retrospective. It's always prospective. We look back to learn the lessons and we say, God, call me forward, not to go back. So then as we move on, surely you're sitting there thinking to yourself, whether online or seated here, what is this whole thing by getting his servant to swear, by putting his hand under his tie. Today, you ask anybody in a personal one-to-one conversation, can you put your hand under my tie? I'll be in trouble, you'll be in trouble, everybody will be in trouble. It apparently was a symbol, a symbol of submission to a person in power, to a person in authority. And basically, it's pledging to them, no matter how difficult, the task. I will try to accomplish it. And the task that Abraham just gave to this servant is what we call in those days, a foreigner, a sojourner, not wanting to find someone, the woman around him, but having to go back. This was mission impossible in terms of matchmaking. The servant said to him, "Uh, perhaps the, the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land, So if the woman, I go back there, I say to to the woman and the family, everything you've told me, Abraham, but I've discharged my duty, but what if I cannot convince her to come? And then Abraham says something really just. He caveats it. Once you have unloaded your duty, done your duty, if she doesn't come back, you are not responsible for it. But notice, before that caveat, you know what he says? He actually says in verse 6, God will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Which means, this is the first signal from Abraham to his servant on Mission Impossible matchmaking. This is the first signal that this is unlike any other matchmaking. This is not human, earthly, cultural Teochew, Hokkien, Indian, Malay matchmaking. This is not Egyptian matchmaking, this is not matchmaking of any kind. This will be divine matchmaking. And divine matchmaking will have divine providence for the whole journey and will have divine appointments as on every part, at every part of that journey. And that includes the angelic appointments. So it's the first sign that Abraham had grown up in his faith, grown up to trust that if God asked him, promised him things and asked him to do things en route to that promise, this God will supply. This God will supply at the right time. And he says to the servant, whether the servant fully understood, we do not know. And so, scene number two. Scene number two is from verse 10 to verse 14. And verse 10 to verse 14, the servant goes, He took 10 of his master's camels, departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts with his master. He arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. I'm told that a camel at that time was like the Mercedes or the BMW. Or you really wanted to upgrade it. It was like the Rolls Royce of that time. If you had one camel, it means you're really rich. By this time... Abraham, the first description of him, God had blessed him in all things. Did you see that? God had promised to bless him and God had blessed him in all things. And I'm told that the journey from Hebron, where Sarah was buried, to Nahor was about 830 kilometres. You want to estimate that? We used to go from here in Singapore to church camp in Malaysia, uh, in, in Malacca. Malacca is about 200 over kilometers. KL is maybe, let's say, 400 kilometers. Penang is perhaps 800 kilometers. So they're going to make this travel. If you travel by yourself, right, you could travel on average by yourself in those days, I'm told by the scholars, 25 miles a day. But you would travel as a caravan with a lot of goods and Obviously, the servant was uh, with a caravan. You travel on an average of 17 to 23 miles a day. And how long would the journey take? The journey will take, if there were no storms, there were no robberies, there were no predators, it would take at least 21 days. So three to four weeks to make this journey. Camels. So I do not know, as modern day people, when was the last time you rode on something? Uh, a donkey, a horse. So I went to New Zealand for a holiday, and then for the very first time decided to try riding a horse. Actually, it's not riding, like, just walking. Okay? So it was Paradise Valley in Queenstown. You ever go there? Beautiful place where they shot lots of the scenes of Lord of the Rings. So that's their advertisement. Come take us a look at the scenery, some of the scenery that they use for Lord of the Rings. And so the whole family decided to do this once-in-a-lifetime thing. And it was a guided tour, very slow. Each one had their own horse. It was, not, it was just walking, right? It was about an hour. The scenery was beautiful, but the horse ride, I tell you, is challenging. You ever ridden a horse? After half an hour to an hour, for a novice, every muscle is aching. And after you get off the horse as a man, you feel that some of your manhood is lost. I don't know how they do it. They they did it in the old days. And I was walking around like John Wayne, you know. My goodness, the whole body was stiffened up. That was only one hour for one part of a day. Try that for 21 days. Going from point A to point Z called Nahor. This is not a journey you and I can take without training. This is not a journey you can take without experience. This is not a journey you can take without dedication. This is not a journey you can take without determination. This is not a journey you can take without perseverance. This is not a journey a servant will take without complete submission to his Master. But he undertakes that journey. That's the journey. So he arrives so the journey itself is arduous. But now, how on earth is he going to find a wife, a needle in a haystack? Don't forget, he's new to this place. He doesn't know this place. He has got no GPS. He's got no contacts there. He's a newbie. And all he has is that he goes to the watering hole. Right? Then we find him praying the first of three prayers. And his prayers run along these lines. And what's the prayer? The prayer is, Let the woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, the woman will say to him, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this shall I know, You have shown steadfast love to my master. So he asked for a very specific, tangible sign. I'm going to arrive there, and as I arrive there, I'm going to be thirsty, My camels are going to be thirsty, and of the many women who will come to draw water from the well, may one of them come up to me and offer me a drink. And to make it slightly harder, Lord, not just me, but offer my camels a drink. And so, of all the many women who would come to the well, and um, only the diligent and the dutiful will go, she must be brave enough to talk to a stranger. And then she must, be brave, she must be kind enough to help a stranger. When was the last time you helped a stranger? Complete stranger. So I arrived back from one of my preaching trips and then before I, as I got in the line, I, this man, um, I saw him struggling, um, an, an Indian man, to, to fill up the form. So I I got alongside him to fill up his immigration entry form. I said, What are you here for? Here, here to work, work, sir. So, okay, the form. He obviously couldn't spell. So, I had to help him word by word, sentence by sentence. What do you do? All he had was the, the, a copy of the S pass that, that was sent to him. So, help him. Have you ever helped a stranger? It's a little bit inconvenient derails you from going somewhere stopping somewhere this woman that the sermon prays for must be brave enough to go up to a stranger kind enough to the stranger and kind enough to all the camels Okay, now what happens what happens to really understand this friends leading to the date the rendezvous from verse 15 onwards before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Melchah, the son of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in at appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled the jars and came up. The servant ran up to her and said, please give me a little water. You read the whole account here, let me summarize. They say that a camel can drink, must drink, 25 gallons of water for what it has lost because it's able to store. And when a camel when you take a drink, right, how have you time yourself how how fast you quench your thirst if you're thirsty? Um, I don't know, a few seconds? Right? How many of you take many minutes to quench your thirst? It takes 10 minutes for a camel to drink up the 25 gallons. And she has 10 camels, 10 camels to quench the thirst of. Have you ever carried water or not? Let me ask, how many of you have gone to a common tap to carry water back for your family? Hands up. If you have gone to a common tap to carry water, you live before 1965. Because that's, that was my existence in Malaysia for many, many years. When there's no running water, there's a common tap. And everybody's lining up for it. And how many pails do you think you can bring back for your family before you cause a massive jam there? The most you can carry is two pails, right? And so she has to run up and down, up and down, up and down. You ever carried how many buckets, how many trips, so what kind of woman is this? We'll get to know that a little bit more. Then he prays. You see, he prayed. He prayed for kindness. He prayed for hospitality. He prayed for a big heart in the woman that would come. That was his simple baseline prayer. And who does he meet? And what does he get? He gets not just a kind, but unbelievably kind lady right? who would come who will run up and down to fill ten camels. This young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden. So you put the whole character of Rebecca together, and a slide later we'll do that a bit more. Hospitality, purity, a virgin. Beauty, above all, pedigree. Because she belongs to Abraham's clan. Kakinang. She's Abraham's kindred. And what does he do, the servant? He repays her in verse 22 with gold rings and bracelets. And uh, that's not all. And what does she do? She offers, he asks, is there space in your house for for me? "Eh, Please come, there's so much space. Anybody open your home like that to a stranger? Please come, my husband. I have no problems with you coming my father, I don't need to ask him. And so, he tries his luck and then he gets to meet the whole family. From this point onwards, as he gets, meets the whole family, he tells the story. Right, But before he arrives there, Rebecca goes back, dashes home, and then her brother sees the gifts. And unlike her, She's not attracted by anything of this servant because the gifts come after her hospitality. The gifts come after her kindness. But Laban is interested when he sees the gifts and then he runs out and welcomes this servant. As the servant goes, they are about to partake of the meal. Guess what? Guess what? He will not eat until he tells of the story. And he tells us the story of his master, the master and God's steadfast love to the master. What does this mean for us, friends? They are very, very poignant things for us to be learning. As we look at Abraham, as we look at Sarah, and now as we look at how the story unfolds in the finding of a wife for Isaac, through this servant who goes out, the meeting of Rebecca and her family, the lessons of faith must be this. And the lessons of faith are, we must believe that the God, the true and living God, the true and loving God, is the God of the details as much as He is the God of the big picture of salvation. We say this again and again. The God over the details. And some of the details here are very important. God of the details, we meet two main characters here. A loyal servant and a suitable wife-to-be for Isaac. What do we know about this loyal servant? What do you know? This loyal servant is so content to be a servant. He's so content to be second fiddle. And the Bible will show you characters and circumstances that drive home this beautiful gospel truth. Not everyone is an Abraham. Not everyone is a patriarch. Not everyone is an Isaac. Not everyone is a Jacob or a Joseph. Not everyone is a Moses. But they are the best supporting actors. And here is the best supporting actor, the first best supporting actor of the Bible in Genesis. This unnamed servant. So what do we know about him? Firstly, his loyalty. He's given Mission Impossible, a very long journey, right? Abraham is old. His time is up. You see, Abraham is old. How is he going to check on the loyalty of this servant? He can't, right? And this servant can cut corners. He could have gone 20 kilometers out and said, I tried. But he stayed out there, camped for 20 days. Then he came back, I tried. But I couldn't find any. End of story. But no, he goes all the way So he serves, even though he is unseen by his earthly master, he's obviously more worried about being seen by God. So it's very important for you and me to decide whether you're going to live your life, do your work to please your earthly masters or to please your unseen, invisible Lord as the servant displays again and again. And then he prays at least three times. And the prayer is always the repeated thing, the steadfast love that you showed my master. Can this steadfast love pass on to his son? You are the God of steadfast love. So from loyalty to his earthly master to fidelity to God at all costs. So, I said earlier, he does not eat until he tells the story. How hungry was he? How famished was he? We do not know, but the necessity of playing the second fiddle. is not an unimportant one for us as Christians and for us as the church. By the time you arrive in the New Testament and the story reaches its fulfilment in the person and work of Jesus, I'm going to ask all the believers here, a no-brainer question. Who was the best supporting actor to Jesus? John the Baptist. And he was always content to play second fiddle. So one of my good pastor friends is Tony Yu. And for many years he, was, he sat in the second chair to his senior pastor, Edmund Chan, for many years. And he wrote a whole book, What's Like to Sit in the Second Chair and to Play the Second Fiddle. Many things goes, go wrong in our work and our homes and our churches and our ministry even when men and women are not content to play second fiddle. And that's so important, my friends, because there can only be one. And not that Abraham wanted to be so, but he was chosen by God to be. So we have a pastoral team of ten, right? There can only be one senior pastor. It's not that I wanted this, but the rest have to learn. And so this is part of the journey. The only reason I became senior pastor is because got all the rest of the pastors left. From Prince of Street. The other left, migrated, and ended up here. It's a very important thing for us to be learning, friends. And then Rebecca, what is it? Her chastity, her hospitality, her pedigree, her ba- bravery. Was the, was the narrator painting for us her noble character? When, we find, when a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. And Proverbs 31 will tell us about this godly wife. Is that a picture of wisdom in action? But we see this in Rebecca. So whatever you do not know, Rebecca is a pretty good name to give to your daughters. All the Rebecca's, we honor you. Isn't that great? Now you think about it, about God's sovereignty over the all the details of our life. This servant could have been of a different personality, a different character. And Rebecca could have been a different personality. So you've taken personality tests, right? So Rebecca could have had, if she took a personality test, she could have been tested and proven melancholic or sanguine. If she's melancholic or sanguine in character, she's not going to run up and say hello to a total stranger, let alone offer him a drink let alone feed his camels, run up and down numerous times to her exhaustion and tiredness, let alone invite him to her home. And that is, Rebecca, for you. So God is sovereign even to, down to our character and our personality. He's sovereign over our nature and our nurture. And He raises each person in His sovereign time to accomplish his sovereign purposes. That's how God works. And then, how does this end? It's not Genesis 18, it's Genesis 24. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I do not know what you felt. Do you ever feel things when you read the Bible, God's Word? And I will ask of you to pray that you might feel God's Word, experience His Word working in your heart as He enlightens your mind and speaks into your born-again heart. Picture this. Sarah passes away at 137 years. Now Isaac is 37 years old. Only child. Contemplate how close mother and son are. Contemplate how intimate. Contemplate how alone and lonely he now must feel as his father Abraham is ageing and is all alone as a sojourner and foreigner in a foreign land. Having lost his mum, there's a huge hole In his heart, there's a huge age gap between him and his parents. A hundred years. But there's an incomparable closeness that closes up that age gap between them. And this one I can possibly resonate with. Because the gap between me and my parents was 50 years. And one of the hardest things for me, as I prayed to get out of my town because it was a very small town in Malaysia, I never felt I belonged. But I knew I had to get out for my future. But I was the only one at home now because all my 11 siblings had left. And one of the biggest things on my mind and burdened my heart was, will I see my dad and my mum again? Because by the time I got on plane at 18, 19 years old, my dad was pushing 70 and he had high blood pressure, he had bad eyesight, he had a whole string of things. I perhaps was the most preoccupied university student at the University of New South Wales with what? I walked around every day into lectures and out of lectures, into tutorials and out of tutorials, trying to find some people to talk to me about death. Because what burdened my heart was what if dad or mum or both passed away if I'm here studying from the borrowed money that they gave for my education. You multiply that by many, many, many times. And the scene that you find Isaac in is all by himself. His mother has passed on. This is grief, love, with nowhere to go. And you see the final scene? Rebecca says, yes, I will go. You know what she says yes to? She says yes to an arduous journey. She says yes to a man she has never seen. She says yes to living in a land she's never been. No photos, no GPS, no nothing. What do you call that? Sounds like stepping out in faith, don't you think? Sounds like stepping out in faith. And as she does so, The family blesses her, and the the family blesses her with thousands upon thousands of children. That's why she had to go immediately, because she had to begin producing. She left. I will go. Actually, the the mother and the brother wanted to slow her down. Were they asking for a bigger dowry? Were they asking for a bigger dowry? We don't know. Then she said, "We'll, we'll ask Rebecca. And Rebecca said, I will go. And so she rides off with the servant, right? Then the next scene that you see, the final passages, is you find Isaac sitting out there in the desert and he is said to be meditating, contemplating as he sits under the skies and the stars the grief of the mother that he loves, the father he might lose very soon and his aloneness and loneliness of What's the meaning of life from this point onwards? And then as he lifts up his eyes, what does he see? As she lifts up her eyes, what does she see? He sees camels. She sees him. That's the difference between man and woman. Right? He saw the camel, she saw him. And then she veils herself because that's the, that's the custom, that's the gesture of betrothal. That you never unveil yourself as you meet your bridegroom-to-be. And then in very, very short form, in very, very very short form, verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So this is the punchline. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That's why this portion is sandwiched between the death. Sarah dies. Abraham dies. But God's purposes and promise of blessing never dies. God's promises of blessing will override death. That's the important thing to take note. And a few things in terms of relationships and marriages, right? A few things to note. Notice He loves the woman he marries. He doesn't marry the woman he loves. We marry the woman we love through a period of three years of dating, four years of dating, and we still mess it up because our divorce rates all around the world are rising. In the Bible, you find in the custom at the time, they marry the woman, right? No. They love the woman they marry. And for him to bring Rebecca into Sarah's tent, meant that the next patriarch and the next gospel couple was now stepping into God's promises and God's blessing. That's how it is. So let's draw the big picture together with lessons. We've seen God of the small details, down to our personalities, that it's not by chance. God of the big picture, God knows how to turn sorrow to joy. He knows how to turn promise to fulfillment and He knows how to turn death to life. And this passage about God the matchmaker is sandwiched between the two deaths of the two most important people in God's salvation story. And so do you believe this? That God knows how to turn sorrow to joy, promise to fulfillment in your life. He knows how to make good out of your mess. And my mess. And the last time I checked, the definition of a believer in God is that before you came to know Him, you and me were enemies of God. You and me made a mess of our lives. And then God did crash your life with the gospel. And God did crash your life with Jesus. And your life got cleaned up. But please take note that God's sovereignty is not simply for our sake, God is not just sovereign of your life. So we mustn't take this and say, okay, this is a wonderful passage for matchmaking. If I follow this, and maybe I pray daring prayers like, Lord, I know this is the person if they come and give me a drink. But not just give me a drink, but give me many drinks. That would be to take this out of its context, because every couple here, beginning with Abraham and Sarah, beginning with Isaac and Rebecca are special in God's salvation purposes. The marriage is arranged not simply to meet their aloneness or loneliness. The marriage is arranged to meet God's purpose of global blessings. So God's sovereignty in your life is not simply for your sake, but for your salvation. I've probably told various versions of similar accounts. So this Sister in Christ came and said, I'm so happy I've got something to tell you. So I said, what is it? Said, I'll tell you in the office, sat in the office, uh, I met this guy, I met him on a, uh, on a business trip and I think he's the one. And I said, yeah, good. Um, but is he a Christian? No, he's not. But he's such a nice guy. We've got so many things in common. What do you think I said at that point? I sort of hold on to my chair and said, I want to be happy for you, but I can only be cautiously happy for you. Because in the initial part of dating and courtship, there may be many commonalities, but when push comes to shove in your fallen nature and sinful nature, you may find you have very little in common apart from sin and self, which will make you a porcupine to live with. Very hard to live with. So sovereignty is not simply matchmaking me because I'm lonely. But this was a matchmaking so that they, being blessed by God, will go on to bless others. That's where we got the tagline for our building project from, "Bless to be a blessing. And with God's sovereignty, did you notice? There are no wasted experiences. And there are no coincidental circumstances. And there are no by chance personalities. It was the right personality of the servant, the right character for Rebecca. Because if it was anyone else, it wouldn't have happened. And God is absolutely sovereign in all those things. So early days when here, then after a while we said, we better think of getting a place. So I went, to, went out to the HDB uh, hub to look at how to buy a, uh, buy a place. I found it was too, too expensive, went back. I went to service, I was at the time serving at Prince up Street, our, our, our founding church, our mother church. And this lady comes up to us, a wonderful lady of God, says, I saw you at the HDB hub. What were you doing there? Yeah. Just exploring whether I could buy a place. How are you looking? At? Ah. Next week she came, she shoved an envelope in, our, in my hands, And when I went back and opened it, it was a substantial sum for the deposit. And she said to me, as she handed me that envelope, what are the chances of me meeting you at HDB? (laughs) In all these years, I've never met you anywhere. And I meet you there. And I work there. You believe in this? The God of the big picture and the God of the small details. I've told you this one, right? We went to eat Korean chicken right, at Juntin. Then I woke up to pay and he said, uh, the, the internet is not working. So cannot pay by general, cannot pay by credit card, only pay by cash. I look at my wallet, no money, no cash. Went to Mona, got cash. I didn't bring my wallet. Guess what? A table, two sisters sitting there from ARPC. We paid, ah, we pay for you, lah. So whenever you go out, always pray to bump into church members, always. I wasn't gonna walk out of that restaurant; I would have been reported to police. I, I, I thought the credit card would do. I thought the gyro would do. It's something you believe in all this? You, you could manufacture. You could think of that a million times. People come here. All I did was attend a, a wedding. And from that wedding, I came to service. And from that service, I, I came to know Christ. And all I did was attend one of the funerals that Pastor Jeff conducted. And you, you conducted, or one of the pastors conducted, and it, the message just drew me in. You think any of that is circumstance? It's the God of the big picture of salvation and the God of the details of your life, my friends. And so, whatever you do not know, this three chapters... Of Genesis is full with pathos. but God the matchmaker, God's love know how to go to where grievous. And that's the gospel story, that living without God, we live outside Eden, outside His presence, and our life is full of sin, disease, and death. That cannot be the life God gave us. It's full of sorrow, and God promises that through Abraham and Sarah, through the descendants would come one that will reverse this. We know it is through the Lord Jesus. And so, through the ups and downs of Abraham's life, Sarah's life, and soon it's going to unfold in Isaac's life, Rebecca's life, look at the ups, look at the downs. He lied twice about Sarah. Twice she, he put her at great harm. Twice she could have been impregnated by somebody else his wife, his God given wife. And Sarah, her downtimes, she got so desperate, so impatient, she said maybe Hagar will do the job, not Sarah will do the job. Through all those things, the pilgrimage of faith, we find God prosecuting his salvation plan through weak people like you and me. And ultimately, as you come to the last, the summary of their lives, God blessed Abraham in all things. And that's why the closing song we're going to sing is, It is well with my soul. No matter how bad our sins are, no matter how weak our faith, is God's faithfulness to His purpose to love us, bless us, and save us. So I do not know where you're travelling today, but I hope that in listening to this Gospel message, you can sing in your hearts and at home with your voices and your hearts. As you reflect on this, it is indeed well with our soul when we have a God that will meet our sorrows and turn them into salvation joy. Let's pray together. Spend some time in personal reflection, whether you're here or at home. For God has spoken his word, and every word of God is true setting us free from the lies of this world, from the fears of this world. And as we listen to God, the faithful God of steadfast love, the faithful God of covenant, the faithful God of blessing, we know from Abraham to the Lord Jesus Christ, to us as his people, it can be well with our soul, no matter what we face in life as we embark on this pilgrimage of faith so loving heavenly father our great lord jesus christ and spirit of god do this work that our walk of faith and our walk of obedience may bring you glory amen